This episode contains possible triggers for sensitive listeners, including strong language and scenes of war. Listener discretion is advised. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives. December 8th. 1941, President Roosevelt addresses a frantic house. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack on Pearl Harbor was what could only be described as horrific. It was violent, fiery, and bloody. But scariest of all, it was sudden. It was a surprise. Just before eight in the morning, as soldiers and seamen were headed to church with their families, over 300 Japanese aircrafts appeared from the clouds, seemingly from nowhere, and descended like mad hornets. Harbingers of destruction, carriers of death. The ensuing barrage lasted an hour and 15 minutes. And after the last bullet had been fired and the last plane had been downed, 1,200 Americans were injured. 2,400 were dead. It was an event that beckoned the U.S. raging into World War II. But more immediately, it sent a tidal wave of fear crashing through the country. Paranoia like a carrying echo. Our collective hackles were raised. The United States government, as well as its citizens, were looking over their shoulders waiting for the next attack, looking desperately for the next threat, for the proverbial monster under the bed. But the thing is, we were looking in the wrong place. I'm Dimitri Karenna, and this is Solid Gold, the insane stories of California. February 25th, 1942, Los Angeles, California, 2.40 a.m. The West Coast is armed to the teeth. Shoreline bases have sprouted quickly, manned 24-7, hands never far from the nearest triggers. Everyone is on edge. Hardly anyone talks to each other here at the base in Santa Monica. The breeze coming off the water is chilled, cold even and the twisted gut feeling each and every soldier feels deep in their bowels only makes them colder. A couple of men have flasks filled with throat-warming whiskey, but nobody drinks any. They must remain 
vigilant. They've received orders to remain on high alert. A radar station near them has spotted something off the shoreline, something coming their way. But what? Everyone's eyes are darting around the night canopy above them, hands clasping their guns, knees bent, ready to jump into action. No word yet on what exactly the radar station saw. It could have been one of those air weather balloons, right? A meteorological balloon, one soldier corrects, and sure, maybe. But they've just received word from a second radar station echoing the exact same news. Something's coming, and it's getting closer. What the hell do you think it could be? Subs? Planes? I don't know, but the third radar station just alerted us to the same thing. I mean, dear God, it's just off the coast. We should be able to see it by now. But they're looking, and they're not seeing anything. Not yet, anyway. The word comes in. The base and all shoreline bases like them are to be placed on green alert, armed and ready to fire. Gunners get to position. Radio and radar techs are all ears and all eyes, hoping to get some sort of clarification on what the hell it is they're supposed to be looking for. Look! They all run to the beach side of the base, all look out into the black night sky and still see nothing. Nothing but distant stars, the moon, and... I see it! Oh god! Oh god, I see it! The soldiers leap into action, begin loading their rifles, preparing their cannons. We got orders to sound the alarm. Do it now. It's 2.50 a.m., and the blaring shriek of air raid sirens scream across the city. People in their beds jolt awake. Dogs start barking and howling. Children begin crying. What's going on? What is happening? Then, like a biblical omen... A blanket of darkness is stretched across the city as all power is shut down. Angelinos will have to face the next in almost pitch blackness. Almost. Because retina-scorching searchlight beams spear into the sky from the scattered army bases, and they flail. Flail in search of the mysterious approaching bogey, the yet-to-be-seen incoming threat, the unidentified flying object come to diminish the city into piles of smoking rubble, just like Hawaii. It's 3.04 in the morning, and suddenly, the unknown object has disappeared from radar screens. It's, it's vanished. But that can't be. Other soldiers are seeing it, pointing at it for God's sake, following it with their very eyes. One man screams, terror etching his throat, swears it's a massive Japanese fleet of planes. Another soldier tells him to calm down, that it's only a blimp. They can handle a blimp. Other men strain their eyes, scan the sky, and they don't see anything at all. But that doesn't stop them, because now it's 3.07, and the first shot is fired. What follows is complete and utter chaos. The Navy rains heavy hell into the Southern California heavens, and the very air burns like fire. December 7th, 1941. Just after the attack on Pearl Harbor, fires are still burning, Smoke and dust still clouding the warm, tropical air. The body count is not yet completed. Oahu is still staggering to its feet, but before it can, 
the FBI barrels out into the island and begins making arrests. It's a mad dash to try and protect Americans, a race to get some sort of handle on the situation that, even though the firefighting is through, is still unfolding. The FBI is rushing to arrest anyone and everyone of Japanese heritage. By the end of their unannounced roundup, 1,291 Japanese Americans, yes, citizens, are taken into custody by the government and their assets frozen. The West Coast follows suit. California, Washington, and Oregon law enforcement and FBI went out into their cities and began rounding up Japanese. Men, women, children, and the elderly. No discretion was shown. It didn't matter whether you were a business owner, a single father, a family woman, or even a pastor. It didn't matter whether you were a week off the boat or second or even third generation American. If you were of Japanese descent, you were an enemy. They broke into homes and turned them upside down, looking for contraband, anything that might connect the home back to the enemy island. What things were considered contraband was up to the individual. Anything suspicious was confiscated. No warrants, no warning. Surprise attack. Weeks later in January, those arrested are shipped away. Montana, North Dakota, New Mexico. The arrestees do not have the opportunity to reach their families, to let them know what's going on, where they are, where they're going, when they'll be back. They don't even know when they'll be back. But this must end soon, right? A few days, weeks? It shouldn't be too long before the initial shock wears off and the U.S. government, the elected leaders of these Japanese-American citizens, citizens who have voted in elections and paid their taxes, would come to their collective senses and do the right thing. These thousands of Americans were counting on it. What they were not counting on was one thing. They were not counting on a very real monster rearing its terrible, grotesque head. February 25th, 1942, back in Los Angeles, 3.20 in the morning. There was a break in the shooting. Debris is falling from the sky. Massive artillery shells land on top of cars, crash through residential homes, plow deep craters into the paved streets and highways. There was already damage to the city done, already casualties. But there is still no sign of the mysterious, unidentified, and now disappearing object in the night. Communications are flooded with conflicting reports. It's only a balloon, just a stupid weather balloon. It's a dirigible. Have we just shot down a dirigible? Is it ours, the Japanese? It was a single plane and it got away. It was a Japanese fleet and they're still up there. Keep shooting before they drop a fucking bomb. The air is thick with the smoke from exploding shells and cannon fire. The searchlights still shine, passing through the haze and the dark like stabbing knives. Where, where did it go? Where is it? Did you stop, okay? The plane is off radar now. That, that wasn't a plane, goddammit. That was something else. Calm down, soldier. If it was the fucking Japanese, we got them, all right? There's no way we didn't with all that we threw at them just now. It's still out there. How could you not see it? You, you, you must have seen that... It. It, soldier? It, lieutenant. That thing, I, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. I, 
What are you talking? Something coming in over the radio. Something that should not be possible. The mysterious object, the disappearing thing, is showing up again on radar screens. No, 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 no. That, that can't be. But it is. I see something. Oh, God. Lo- load up. Everybody load up now. Get to your fucking stations. This is not the a bogey threat. Is back, this is not a threat. And the firing commences once more. Once you have it in your sights, fire at will. General John DeWitt speaks sternly with President Roosevelt. His tone is grave. DeWitt is the leader of the Western Defense Command, a decorated army general, and Roosevelt trusts his judgment. Trusts that DeWitt's primary objective is exactly what his job title entails, defending the West of the country. DeWitt lays out his case, presents damning evidence that there is indeed a threat from within, a threat posed by Japanese Americans, and that they must act now to save lives, to protect their God-given country from terror. He suggests mass arrests, transporting the threat away from major cities on the coasts and inland to facilities where they can be monitored, watched, patrolled, kept under control. He uses the word evacuation when he says this has the word written down on the papers he's presenting to the president, who considers the idea seriously. After all, he just watched his country get attacked. He proclaimed that the United States was officially joining the war unfolding overseas. What would it look like if he didn't do everything he possibly could here at home? He agrees to the notion DeWitt has laid out, and an official executive order is signed. 9066, it's called. And it states... Quote, I hereby authorize and direct the Secretary of War and the military commanders whom he may from time to time designate whenever he or any designated commander deems such action necessary or desirable to prescribe military areas in such places and of such extent as he or the appropriate military commander may determine from which any or all persons may be excluded and with respect to which the right of any person to enter, remain in, or leave shall be subject to whatever restrictions the Secretary of War or the appropriate military commander may impose in his discretion. There are key words in there that are worth noting. First being prescribe. To prescribe military areas, as if these military zones are some sort of medicine for a national sickness. The other words are may determine and may impose in his discretion. The president is saying, I give these men the ability to do whatever they see fit as they see fit to whoever they see fit to do it to. It goes on to state that whatever needs the arrestees may need, food, shelter, water, etc., be provided by the Secretary of War, or whoever the Secretary of War appoints to their individual discretion. That the military can have deciding power in these areas. Power to use local law enforcement for their zones at their discretion. The thing is, the so-called evidence that DeWitt brought to the president was bogus. He literally fabricated evidence in the report that was later found out to be falsified. 
This was the man in charge of these new military areas. It finishes with this, and I'll be paraphrasing a little bit here. This order should not be thought of as changing or constricting the duty of the FBI, the Attorney General, or the Department of Justice when it comes to their investigation of sabotage, espionage, and the conduct and control of enemy aliens. There. Right there. That phrase. Enemy aliens. That's the most important phrase. The one I want you to remember. I want you to think of where you've heard that before. The sentiment that those words entail. The spirit of those words. I'm gonna bet you don't have to think very hard. Los Angeles, February 25th, 1942, 3.55 a.m. An old man hiding under his dining room table covers his ears and screams into his darkened house. A hunk of debris fell through his ceiling just moments ago, just as he was running from his car into the side of his house, down his narrow hall to the dining room. He watched as the plaster above his head exploded inward and a hunk of smoking metal struck his barking dog who was still somewhere beneath all of that metal. But amidst the continuing gunfire, all he could do was scream. A young woman clutches her children to her breasts. They're crying, weeping, wailing hysterically. Her husband was supposed to be back home. His late night shift should have ended at three. But then all hell broke loose. And now she wonders if he's all right. If he's out there hiding like she is. If she'll ever get to see him again. A shell explodes somewhere outside the house and they all jump. That one sounded much too close. An old woman has been trying to phone, but it's no use. Nothing is working. She doesn't understand what in the hell is going on. She needs to let her son know that he has to come get her, has to come and help her. All she knows is that they're under attack, just like what happened in Hawaii, but... Oh, Jesus, it's happening here now, too. Is that what took out the power? Is this a terrorist attack? She peers up through her sheer curtains into the exploding sky, and an expression of manic horror bleeds from her eyes down to her jowls. Good God, what is that thing? Oh, no, it, it can't be. She drops the phone, then drops to the floor, limp. Her heart trips clumsily in her chest once, twice more then gives out. I see it! There, 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 shoot it! There is something in the air. Something with the uncanny ability to hide in plain sight. Something big, something powerful, something menacing, something malevolent. But it's not a UFO. The zones I mentioned earlier, the ones meant for alien enemies, 
turned out to be prison camps. All right, move it. Come on, get a move on. The prison camps were hastily built in remote locations, typically deserts, along the western United States. The internment camps were crowded, poorly constructed. Many of the sleeping quarters were just furnished livestock stables. Some people were stationed at slightly more comfortable camps, had small stoves in their cabins, and would get deliveries of ice and milk. They even had fake plastic money to spend within the camps. But none of that did or could ever make up for the fact that these people's lives were stolen from them. Their homes, their money, their businesses. A meager stove and some plastic money to spend at a prison camp convenience store is, and pardon my aggressive tone here, a load of horse shit. And I can't go any further without mentioning that Japanese were not the only people to be mistreated during all of this. Some numbers for you. 11,000 ethnic Germans were detained, stripped of belongings, and investigated in the United States. 600,000 Italian immigrants were named enemy aliens and investigated as well, also stripped of belongings, also relocated. Some hundreds of Germans and Italians were sent to the internment camps, but the faces of the camps were predominantly, overwhelmingly, Japanese. 120,000 Japanese were arrested, presumed guilty, and sent away to the prison camps, where they were guarded around the clock like violent criminals. The majority of them would remain in the camps until the end of the war. Enemy aliens. Enemy aliens. I'll keep saying it so you don't forget that language, that sentiment so that you can hear it better next time somebody says it, or something like it. Enemy aliens. Tens of thousands of people were arrested and kept from their homes until the war was over, until the government who deemed them untrustworthy, based on faulty, exaggerated, and even totally fabricated evidence, decided they were fit to return home, fit to be relieved of their iron fist custody at their discretion, of course, and not a moment before. Internment camps were located in the following California cities. I'm only mentioning those in California. Arcadia, Fresno, Marysville, Merced, Owens Valley, Pinedale, Pomona, Sacramento, Salinas, San Bruno, Stockton, Tulare, Woodlock, and Woodland. The gunfire continues. Fear and anxiety as thick as the smoke in the air. So thick, it's suffocating. They continue to fire at the thing in the sky, the shapeless monstrosity, the belligerent evil, the chaotic and choking monster of mystery, the ethereal terror, doubt, blame, resentment, racism, hate. These are the monsters that filled the skies, filled the hearts and minds of Americans all across the country. And that night in Los Angeles, these feelings were so palpable 
the military turned their guns on a ghost. They turned their guns, essentially, on themselves. Even after the fact, the government gave conflicting reports. Secretary of War Henry Stimson said 15 planes operated by, quote, enemy agents buzzed over LA with every intent to strike, while Secretary of the Navy said that the whole thing was a false alarm caused by, quote, jittery nerves. No matter what officials said or didn't say, the fear still kept its vice grip. People swore they saw something in the sky that night, swore they saw an object, many objects, a whole fleet. One New York Times article wrote, quote, the more the whole incident of the early morning of February 25th in the Los Angeles district is examined, the more incredible it becomes. The whole event became known as the Battle of Los Angeles. It was a devastating firework display of our prejudice and fear and rage. A bright, shining, and explosive manifestation of America's monster. Not unidentified, not mysterious, not hiding behind a cloud or behind the coat in our darkened closets, but out and loud and mean and vindictive. There's a Mark Twain quote that I'm sure you've heard before. It goes like this. History does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Growing up, I didn't hear much about the internment camps. Don't get me wrong, they were mentioned is more accurate. I did, however, learn about things like manifest destiny and American heroism and exceptionalism in wartime. I learned about how there used to be racism against black people, but then we fixed it and we're much better now. This is a history podcast, not an outwardly political one, but the thing is, history is politics, isn't it? History and politics and religion and race, they're all intertwined. They make up the threads of the rope of our past, one that we are continuing to twist and build as we go. Another quote, this one is from acclaimed filmmaker Ken Burns. Quote, for me, I think the sub-theme of American history is race. This rope of history we're building, we must be careful how we build it. What we put into this rope that keeps our anchor, that is meant to keep us tethered and headed in the right direction. Because when we hear things like enemy aliens, fear-mongering over Hispanic and Latinx people, black and brown people, indigenous people, Asian people, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, we must react accordingly. We must question and challenge fear rhetoric, especially fear rhetoric that targets an entire swath of human beings. That American monster still roams free. It hides in plain sight. It is a lumbering beast. Call it out when you see it, when you hear it. It cannot be killed easily. It will not be killed quickly, but it can be killed. And the fight won't be won with rage or fear. It won't be won with guns or bombs or flags or angry mobs and tear gas. It will be won with love.
each and every single one of you for coming with me on this journey through history. I'm honored to have shared these stories with you, and I hope you had as much fun listening as I did writing and recording these. This was a project of fun and love and self-doubt and passion and late nights and headaches and hours and hours and hours of sitting in front of a screen, and it's finally all out there for the world to tear apart, which is kind of a weird feeling. If you liked any of what you heard, please, please leave me a good review and share, share, share your favorite episode with your friends and family. Those two things really, truly help me get the show discovered. You can also let me know uh, if you have any particular stories that you think would be great for our second season, which I do plan on doing. I have every intention. I'm already gathering stories. So DM me on Instagram at solidgold underscore podcast and let me know if there are any stories you think would make good future episodes. This episode was written and narrated by me, Dimitrik Kareno, and was produced by myself and the incredibly talented, remarkably kind, and always dreamy Brody Warrell. This has been the finale episode of Solid Gold the insane stories of California, a Voice in My Head production. Thank you so much again for everything. And I will see you next time.